And now, The Mentors, one of the most popular and unique shows on the radio today. Each week, one of our four remarkable CEOs, including Tom Lord, John Phillips, and Rick Brutico, will challenge your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their success and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Mentors. I am your host, Tom Laurie, and we're coming to you from our Salem Network studio in California. We all need mentors along the way. They come from all walks of life, from all cultures, and from all stages of life. Good mentors are invaluable as they share their hard-won knowledge and wisdom about success at home, in your job, and most importantly, in life. This show is for everyone, regardless of where you are on your journey. As we can learn from everyone, we are all on a journey. I purposely seek out guest mentors who can be inspirational and provocative. Today, we have two guest mentors who are certain to be provocative. And they are Michael Caples, who is a labor and employment lawyer from Walnut Creek, California, and David Wolf, who is also a labor and employment lawyer from Berkeley, California. And we're going to be talking about employment law and some of the more current issues that are being uh, on the radio and TV 24-7 these days. Now, Michael has had 46 years in employment and labor law. He's represented mostly management but he has uh, also been a plaintiff's attorney. He's defended wrongful termination, discrimination, and other employment litigation, and sexual harassment. He represents employers before both state and federal courts. He's been a public speaker in the area of uh, labor and employment law. He's conducted seminars regarding wrongful termination, employee privacy, workplace violence, wage and hour, discipline and termination. He's a graduate of California State University. He's cum laude from the Whittier College School of Law, and he did some additional work at New York University. Something that's also important to note about Mike is that he is a retired colonel from the United States Army. He had served in Iraq, Haiti, Thailand, Indonesia, Korea, and Australia. He's been awarded the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star, and Meritorious Service Medals, among others. Thank you for your service. Thank you. And David, our good friend from Berkeley, uh, has 30 years is in the defense uh, side of law. He's been a director of labor relations for Providence Health System. He has also been assistant general counsel at Sutter Health. He's been in both, and so has Michael. They've both been in a big firm, and now they're in private practice. David has a JD from the University of Pacific McGeorge McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento. He also did some work, which we'll ask a little bit, uh, David, in Heidelberg, which is one of my most Mm. favorite beautiful places in the world. I'm happy to tell you about it. So he can tell us a little bit about that. And he is a member of the Phi Kappa Phi Honor Society. He's the past chair and vice chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco Ethics Committee, and he's been on a number of committees for the Healthcare Human Resources 
administration. He's been involved in hiring processes, pre-employment inquiries, background checks, recruitment, and many of the same things that Mike has been involved in with regards to litigation. Welcome to both of you. Indeed. Good, Good to be here. David, tell us a little bit about Heidelberg. Heidelberg, Ausgezeichnet, as the former governor would say, right? But he was from Austria, of course. But um, no, Heidelberg was wonderful. I was there from 79 to 81. Um, just a beautiful city. Uh, definitely a throwback if, uh, when you think about that time. That was when Germany was still divided. But uh, beautiful town on the Neckar River. And uh, matriculated there as a regular student, having taken the German as a foreign language exam, passed that by the skin of my teeth and loved it. And along the way, uh, who was the, your influence in your life uh, on you to become a lawyer? Wow. Um, gee, that's a great question. Some of my professors in undergrad at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Uh, I also used to work for Del Monte Foods and... Um, I was inspired by some of the things I did there to pursue labor and employment law because I was working with a lot of the staff members there, and, and uh, we had a union contract. It was a big Teamsters Council, Cannery Council uh, contract with about 1,200 employees and ran 24-7 all summer long. It was just an inspirational place to be, and that's how I got into labor relations. That's the very short version for you, Tom. Well, but since this is the mentors, was there any particular person who you can look back on and say was a key mentor for you in your career? You know, there's a key person who um, inspired me to pursue this particular practice area. Her name is Kathleen Kelly, and uh, she was a professor at my law school, and she was a local mediator and had been a partner in one of the big law firms. And she probably, among a very small handful of people, uh, motivated me to, um, to do that, to pursue labor and employment law. Great. And Mike? Yeah, interesting. I uh, and this happens to people now and again. I actually, I think, ended up in law more by negative example. Um, I had uh, had a as a college student uh, an experience with uh, this was was when you know protests were rampant on college. So we don't need to get into the details. But I had I had a negative experience with a with a lawyer uh, that was representing me. Uh, in, a, in a situation, and I, I, I decided, you know, I can do a lot better than that. And then uh, after college, I became a, a high school teacher, and uh, I happened to join right when they were in the middle of a, a big uh, labor dispute. This is in Southern California, and uh, it was very, very frustrating for me. And again, I thought, you know, I can do better than this. So uh, that a friend of mine convinced me that I should go to law school. Uh, he had, had also become a labor lawyer, and uh, I was already predisposed to the, to the labor and the employment. So here I am 37 years later. And if I came to you as a, a younger person in college and asked your advice on going into the field of law, what would you tell me? You're nuts. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You know, it, it, the, the, the field of law is really, really diverse. So, you know, if somebody comes to me, and they do, they do this regularly, uh, even my own children, um, then, then we have to talk about what it is that interests them, what is it they find fascinating about law, uh, because there's a very, very uh, different lifestyle, different kinds of pressures and things that are attached to, for example, if you're going to be a criminal defense or prosecution lawyer versus uh, being a civil litigator. 
there's very different between being a civil litigator and an M&A, mergers and acquisitions attorney, or between uh, being an M&A attorney and being a trust and estates attorney. So just have to find out where they want to be. Um, and and different personalities thrive in in those different practices. Yeah, that's uh, and I've worked with lawyers of all different stripes across the board. Some really good ones, law. I think. <laughs> a lot of good lawyers. Anyways, we're going to come right back in a minute, and we're going to be talking about what has changed in the practice of law since you guys uh, first got involved. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. This is Tom Laurie, and we're back again with David Wolf and Michael Caples, two expert lawyers in the field of employment and labor law. And we're going to be talking about the changes that have occurred in the legal profession over the last what if for you, Mike, it must be 100 years or so. It just feels like it. <laughs> and we will, in a few minutes, be talking about some of the issues that are currently making the headlines in employment law. Uh, I want to go to David. I think, I think it's 68 years between us, Mike. Is that is that it? 68 years of law <laughs> practice. And so feels like 68 by now years we should be by getting myself. it right, but it's still a challenge. I have to say it's a challenge. That's why they call I, it practice. I, I, I admit that it's a, it's a challenging field. Well, David, you were telling me at one time we were talking about all the changes and how things have changed, particularly with the uh, digital gig economy and the things that we're seeing with Uber and whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's changed so much. I mean, in the, in the, back in the days before the internet, just finding what the law was when a client had a problem was a big part of the work that you did. And you do opinion letters, especially if you were at a big firm, you'd, you would you know, write up a legal opinion uh, trying to give the client some succinct advice about their problem, and you spent a ton of time uh, just researching what the law was and trying to put it in a in a cogent uh, piece of written material for the client. Then the internet came along, and then just this incredible um, information availability surge that we I, you know I joke around and we we call our some of our clients uh, Google lawyers. No offense to any of you clients listening. But it's like they can look up on Yahoo, Google, Bing, whatever, and they can come up to come to your office or call you on the phone, and they've already got like ninety percent of the answer, and they they um, they want you to just give them what they need to move forward. I, I'm exaggerating maybe on the percentage. Mike's looking at me here askance, but you know it's just changed so much that I, I'd say analogi- you know analogizing to healthcare, it's the uh, the acuity of the patient is much higher now, and uh, the practice is much more difficult in terms of, um, you know, getting business and being able to provide um, a service for your, your clients. And I think, I think we're still litigious. I mean, I, I worked for the Judicial Council, too, for a few years, and Tom didn't mention that before. But I think at any given time in California, there are about 10 million pending cases, from traffic to the most complex litigation on any given day. And so it's yeah, I could go on forever, so stop me. Well, Mike, what do you? What would you say about the differences since when you first started in law? Well, I, I agree to, with with what Dave said. Um, you know, when I when I started, uh, we still had. In fact, we were just starting to get faxes. You know, with that really slick, crappy paper. Oh, I said that on the radio. Um, but anyway, um, 
I think I think the technology is a big one, and it has come in phases. And one of the effects of the technology is that um, there has been an increased lack of patience uh, mm-hmm. on the part of clients and senior attorneys who are trying to p- please clients. And as David said, you know, where you used to be able to just reflect a little bit and and really structure uh, an answer to a problem, now people don't understand that that's actually a good thing. So they want, you know, they send you the question and uh, they want the answer, you know, 48 nanoseconds later. The Internet has just exacerbated that. So that's that's one big thing. And then I think the other is civility. Um Civility in our practice in, in, in the area of law has just really, really gone downhill, so much so that courts are putting together uh, specific programs to address it. And why do you think the civility has gone down? You know, uh, a lot of reasons, I suppose. I think part of it is the, uh, the risk. The, you know, there's so much at stake uh, Particularly, and I don't know that they see this in the criminal bar as much, but they might. My twin brother's a uh, criminal lawyer, and he he could speak to that. But, but in this in the civil arena, there is so much at stake. Uh, there is no such thing as a really small case, you know. Um, so you know, especially in employment, every case you get is a six, even seven figure potential. Well, you know, there's a lot of pressure that goes along with that. Then so. So with that kind of pressure, there is, uh, I think you create a lack of patience and inclination to go on the attack when it's not necessary. So that's part of it. You know, there's also just a, a, a lot of competition out there. Um, so the, the bigger firms are competing for the business. Um, it's probably one of the worst job markets in a long time for new lawyers. Um, you know, we also talked a little bit about uh, big law, what we call big law, and, you know, the idea that um, some of the larger firms will set up call centers uh, or work centers for non-partnership track attorneys to be doing uh, research and writing with, you know, have a life, just have a regular salary and regular hours, but have no interest in the, in the grind that has been the traditional law practice where you work hard for a number of years and then make partner and it's the pie-eating contest where the, the prize is more pie. And, uh, you know, and, and artificial intelligence, I mean, AI uh, is a potential threat. Uh, I also see the staffing companies that snap up uh, experienced senior lawyers and deploy them for periods of, you know, months here and there. Uh, that is sort of, uh, they're disruptors a little bit in the, in the practice um, because they're not, they're they're making uh, making it possible for companies to staff their legal department without actually hiring people, so um, and not having to go to a big firm where they pay more. So there's a lot of pressure, you know, just the um, the various uh, internet-based um, services that provide you know wills and trusts and the sort of thing that you see advertised, um, you know, in the media. So it has changed a lot. Now, you had mentioned uh, in a previous conversation about how the railroads changed the practice of law back in the late 1800s, a lot of law based off of what happened with railroads, which was a disruptor in the economy. Right. And now we have things like Uber, and there's all these disruptive forces. So you've talked about the, the Google client, but you also have a situation where the, 
the practice of law. We talked about the practice, yeah. ordinary, but now you've got all this other stuff where there may not be case law. I guess is. Uh, well, I suppose it's a possibility. I mean, it, it, when we talk about Uber and Lyft and um, just some of the the companies that are really changing the way uh, business is conducted, you know, the, you think about the the local uh, utilities commission or the the um, issuance of um, you know taxi medallions in San Francisco and all that stuff. And by the time the the disruptors are there pro- providing the ride sharing service and the sharing economy. There's no enforcement agency that can probably get their arms around what's happened because the the uh, the cat is out of the bag. And uh, with regard to practice of law, there are some good things about what I said earlier. The access of information, access to information, is available to everybody. And uh, you know we can talk about net neutrality if we have time for it. But you know everybody is sort of an even playing field up to a point with regard to their research tools, the things that they can obtain online. So you're more or less on an even even playing field with with big firm attorneys. Um, you know, and I've been in big firms, a couple of big firms, but now I'm on my own. Um, and so there's a bit of a challenge in being able to to do battle with, uh, you know, the, the mega firm. Great stuff. After the break, we're we're going to come back and we're going to get in some of the details of uh, some of the more important, I don't want to say less important, more important, but the issues of the day, which are filling the airwaves with uh, issues around harassment and discrimination. We'll be right back. This is Tom Laurie for The Mentors. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. If you've just tuned in, you can listen to the entire show and previous shows by going to TheMentorsRadio.com, TheMentorsRadio.com. And remember, you can take The Mentors with you wherever you go. You can find us at the website, on Facebook, iTunes, and on podcasts. Uh, We're talking with David Wolf and Michael Caples, two experts in the area of employment law and labor law. And we were just talking about the changes in the practice of law since they first started. And we're going to switch gears a little bit and get to one of the hot subjects uh, that is currently filling the airwaves and the newspaper headlines, and that is the issue of harassment. And it's uh, certainly getting a lot of press. And let's talk a little bit from a uh, an employer perspective first. What is sexual? What is harassment? Let's make more broad and then come down. Yeah, actually, you know, <laughs> harassment in the, in the labor and employment area is actually a term of art, and it has a very specific uh, uh, definition. So, you have to have unwanted conduct. That conduct can be verbal. It can be visual. It can be physical. Uh, the conduct has to be based upon a uh, protected category of some sort, sex, race, age, national origin, religion, military status, whatever. A lot of people love to bandy about the term harassment, you know. Well, the fact is harassment in the workplace is not illegal unless it's on some forbidden uh, basis. Um, uh, And that gets lost in the shuffle. Uh, It may, if you're being harassed and and it's causes you emotional distress at work, you may have a workers' comp claim, but it's not necessarily illegal. That harassment, that verbal, physical, visual, or physical conduct has to be uh, either uh, 
pervasive or extreme. One or the other. It doesn't have to be both. So there's got to be a lot of it so that it basically becomes a condition of your employment that you have to submit to this bad behavior or the bad behavior is sufficiently bad in a single or two incidents that uh, that then it becomes, it, it basically it changes your environment and it becomes part of your employment. So, uh, and then of course there has to be some some employment effect. Now the employment effect is pretty easy. If this stuff's happening at work, you're gonna have that. Um, something a lot of people don't realize is it, it makes a difference who's doing the bad behavior. Uh, if a supervisor is engaging in this kind of conduct, then because the supervisor is in that position because the employer put him there, and it's the employer's workplace, if the supervisor is doing this, then the employer is going to be strictly liable for it. On the other hand, if it's just a co-employee doing this, then the employer can be held liable, but only if it knew or should have known that this was going on. Of course, the catch there is should have known, because how many juries are going to listen to somebody testifying that this kind of bad sexual or, or, or racist behavior is going on and say, well, you should, you, I, we know you say you don't know about it, but, but really you should have known. So, so that's not very much comfort to, uh, to employers. But that's, that's what it is. It's not, just, you know, it's not just bad behavior I don't like. So what should an employer do, and I'll flip it over to David, to, pre, to protect themselves? Well, obviously, uh, every employer should have a policy against harassment that they actually uh, utilize and uh, train their management team on how to address the issue, let everybody know that they are going to be safe if they report it, that they're able to say no to the harassment if it's happening. Um, I was listening to uh, uh, another interview on the radio recently where there was a woman who had been in, uh, a researcher in, in Antarctica with, I think that's where she was, with a very small group and had suffered incredible m- misconduct by one of her colleagues. It was like incredibly appalling and she had no place to go because they're in the middle of nowhere. And they were even uh, harassing her about how often the helicopters come that, that she had no recourse to stop it. And I don't remember the name of the individual at the moment, but it's just that's, that's the kind of egregious conduct. You know, when Mike talked about it being severe and pervasive, um, that was both severe and pervasive, and there was nothing that she could do. And I don't know what the em- employment relationship was in that academic setting. They may not have had an employer-employee or supervisor-subordinate relationship, but First of all, you have to have the policy in place. That's required. You have to provide training. That's required. You can look at the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing website to get it guidance on what you need to do. Um, you're required to do supervisory training depending on the size of your, of your business, but I think it's a good idea to do it regardless of the size of your business. And, you know, this is a cyclical thing. We've seen it before. We saw it during the Clarence Thomas hearings years ago, and we've seen it often you know, just popping up often uh, since then. But but right now we've got this anomalous situation. Maybe it's not anomalous. It's just coming out. And I think it's because the people who are reporting the harassment now might be more senior in their careers. They've got nothing to lose. They are in a position where they can just be brave about it and come forward. And, uh, you know, it's it's amazing to watch the, the people who are falling by the wayside, you know, just you know, by the dozens, it seems. So what, from an employer standpoint, uh, and I've seen some of this 
not to a great extent, but to a small extent. So somebody is in a, in a role of uh, responsibility and a charge is made and the charge, and they can have a policy, you can have all the training and everything else. And the charge uh, is not real. The charge is uh, something that somebody is doing to get even for something. Uh, well, maybe maybe right. the employer is uh, increasing the discipline in a, in a department. Mm-hmm. And this happened in a company I ran uh, where some employee, when this started to complain about the supervisor and used the uh, charge of uh, discrimination or harassment. Well, they can, they can be in big trouble. There was a fairly recent court of appeal case on that that, that um, – uh, you know, they, if they make a false claim of harassment, it can have se- severe repercussions for them. If they took it forward and litigated that claim, and it turned out that it was a false claim, uh, you know, there may be an award of, of fees, costs, you know, sanctions against uh, the plaintiff in that case. But, you know, I saw, I saw a case like this in my recent practice um, where the allegation was made by a probationary employee who was released from probation and the uh, employer, a large employer, uh, conducted their investigation and found that no harassment had occurred. But there was definitely a miscommunication. There was definitely some behavior that might have been questionable, but they reached a good faith conclusion that nothing had, had you know, the policy had not been violated. So, you know, it. Uh, I, I would say that whenever an employer learns of a claim of harassment, they are under an obligation to investigate that claim. And a lot of times someone will report it and they'll say, gee, don't, I don't want anybody to know about this. Keep it to yourself. HR says, uh, you know, sorry, I can't do that. I've got to follow up on it. We'll be discreet. Uh, we'll, you know, but I'm going to need to follow up on it and investigate your claims. And that's when the ball starts rolling. Now that I see some employers overreact and do th- things that are uh, extreme and others can deal with the problem prudently um, efficiently, and it's important that they are mindful of their obligations vis-a-vis the person who's complaining, the victim of the harassment. Um, I still see situations where somebody who's the victim of harassment getting moved uh, instead of the harasser, and that is still not the way to go. But there's there's a lot that can be done, but once the claim is out there, the employer is obligated to look into it. And <clears throat> the employee... Uh, Mike, uh, the employee, well, I think we're going to, let's go to break and then we'll come back and we're going to, this is Tom Laurie with the mentors with Mike Caples and David Wolf. And we're going to come back and talk about sexual harassment. And now back to the mentors where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. This is Tom Laurie. We're back with our Host mentors are today Michael Caples and David Wolf, who are experts in the area of employment and labor law, and we've been talking about sexual harassment, and we're going to continue with that subject. And I'm going to turn to Mike. Uh, I had a company that I ran years ago down in Santa Barbara, and half of the employees were fairly recent graduates out of the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, most all were not married. I mean, it was one workforce where there's a lot of unmarried people. And I know that parallels a lot of what we see up here in Silicon Valley with some of these large firms. And people are getting married much later, which means their years of dating and everything 
uh, are much longer than what we would have seen 20, 30 years ago. The workplace has been a, a place for people to meet people. It's Absolutely. been an area where romances blossom. What, what should an employee do? I mean, now you're in this environment and, there, and, and things have been, sensitivities are raised. What, what would you tell an employee in one of those environments? Somebody may want to date them. Maybe they don't want them to date them. Yeah, don't, don't talk to any of your coworkers. <laughs> now, I, you know, it, it's really tough. Uh, this is part of when, you know, when I do sexual harassment training, uh, there was a study a number of years ago about the amount of our waking hours that Americans spend in the workplace. And it's absurd. I mean, the rest of the world laughs at us uh, because we, we have uh, this absurd, we feel guilty if we take days off. Um, so it is, it is a good chance that you're going to meet uh, uh, your significant other, your wife, your husband, your whatever, uh, at work. So, so what do you do when somebody asks you out, which is the first step in that process, um, and, and you're not interested? You say no. I mean, no's not hard. Just you say no. Now, if it's your boss, you still say no. Uh, may may not be comfortable doing it, but you know, at some level, we're all expected to behave like responsible adults, and you say no. Now, if they come back and they they ask you again, then it then it starts getting more problematic. I I tend to to have kind of a three strikes rule myself. I mean, the first time there's a difference. You know, if 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 somebody says if you ask somebody out, you express interest to them. And they say, oh, you know, no, I, I'd love to, but I'm busy that night. Well, that's a very different thing than uh, knowing I'd appreciate it if you never darkened my door again. So, so you got to listen to to what conversation is happening here. But at the end of the day, you got to say no. And people who are doing the asking, who are doing the approaching, need to understand. No means no. There's nothing confusing about it. It doesn't look like yes. It's not spelled like yes. It doesn't sound like yes. No means no. And employers need to be enforcing this. Uh, you can put policies in. It's your, it's your workplace. You can, you can regulate the, the atmosphere of your workplace. Uh, you can put in nepotism policies. You can even put in policies that address workplace romances, particularly when it is between a superior subordinate. Uh, you can do that. Um, but as David said, you know, you can have all the policies you want. You can do all the training you want. But, you know, if the employer's not going to enforce it, if the employer is going to tolerate it for some business reason or some other reason, um, then then it doesn't matter. So um, saying no is the first thing. If it happens, if, if you feel like you've been harassed, you need to bring it to the attention of the employer. Who you bring it to the attention of, too, depends on who the employer is. Do they have a human resources department? If so, you should tell them. Do you have a supervisor who is not part of any of this? Then you should tell him or her. Uh, if your supervisor is a problem, you're not going to necessarily go to the supervisor, so you go to HR. If HR is either not there because there's no HR department or whatever, you go to some other executive. Eventually, you may have to go to the president or the CEO. But you have to tell them that employers can't do anything about this if they don't know what's going on. Um, and employees, I think, have a lot more uh, power and influence in this than they think they do. 
sexual as we're, we're learning this now sexual harassment's a very scary thing to be be uh, be accused of and as you mentioned bogus claims are made all the time uh, I mean I've seen it I see it all the time so so employers need to take it seriously employees need to give the employer the chance to take it seriously and then the employer needs to address it so I read uh, or heard last week that one of the major tech employers here in Silicon Valley has told all of its employees, and it's got a very large workforce, I won't name them, uh, but they have to report, I think, to HR if they're having a relationship with another employee within the company. It's got to be made known. Yeah, you That's know, an interesting one. I, I think there there's an, an old case that that uh, colleague uh handled years ago called it was rule on miller versus ibm i think yeah and um i think in that case there was a jury verdict against the employer who terminated or took adverse action against an employee who was in a romantic relationship with an employee at a competitor company and they played softball together and i can't remember all the facts but it was it was you know it's probably 30 something years ago but i think there's a there's a tension between your workplace your privacy rights outside of work, and I think Mike is of the view that we really don't have the same kind of privacy rights at all in the workplace as we might imagine. But I think in that case, the employer might be going too far, but uh, they're asking for sort of a voluntary um, report of, of such a relationship. I mean, the, the problem with these relationships, and Mike, you can talk about this, uh, I'm sure you've ex- seen this as well, is that is when they go bad, that's when trouble uh, crops up because there may be a perfectly consensual relationship and if it's out of sight of the coworkers, they don't know about it so they're not offended by the interaction between the couple at work because they're keeping it outside of work that that can be a successful relationship that doesn't upset anybody's apple cart but the minute that the relationship goes bad and, and the minute there's tension between the two that has an effect in the workplace then it's a, a serious problem. It can be a serious problem. You know, let, let me jump in on Rulon Miller because that was a very different set of facts. That was a, an IBM employee uh, dating a, a, an, a former IBM employee who was now with a competitor. Right. And there were trade secret concerns and you know whether they were legitimate or not doesn't matter. When you have two current employees dating, um, I would be troubled by a policy that says you have to uh, because if you if 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 there's that policy, I don't think I don't think it's a voluntary report. I think you're I think because presumably there's discipline if you don't. Otherwise, they wouldn't use the word have to. So, mm. I think I think that's a very problematic thing because there is a constitutional provision in, in California, labor code also provision, uh, right to privacy. You can't take adverse actions against employees for off work conduct that is not illegal. Dating somebody so far is not illegal. Now, they can take that that conduct and they can drag it into the workplace if they start, uh, you know, whatever. They start doing kissy faces or, you know, they're somehow showing favoritism, uh, which would more likely be a supervised thing. But they can take their outside conduct and they can bring it into the workplace. Now the, work, the employer can do something about that. But, but if it's just, uh, whether it's sub gross or not, even if people know they're dating, if, if, they, if this is not manifesting itself in a workplace, the employer needs to stay the heck out of it. If it's a supervisor subordinate dating, that's a whole different, that's a whole different program. And right. 
David, real quick, we're, we're in the holiday season, and there's a tradition called the Christmas party. Oh, gosh, yeah. And I heard— Don't go. You know, <laughs> I, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You can go, but just— Behave yourself. Behave yourself, right? Well, I heard one company yeah. will not have a, an open bar, and there's a lot of things going on under this uh, curtain of uh, right. that we have on, on what's going on today in the workplace. But a One drink maximum. There you uh, go. Yeah, well, I hear a lot of people— uh, it, it's, you know, they get inebriated and then other things happen. Right, and that that is a uh, a trap for the unwary, and there's potential liability there. You know, one of the great research questions is like that the, the vendors use is like, is there any liability for a social host? Usually, there is not. And if something, but if something bad happens at work, you know, there might be a workers' comp claim. There might be a, a more serious claim. Uh, it's certainly something that should not happen. It's like. Uh, what happens at the Christmas party does not stay at the Christmas party, so uh, or whatever holiday party, whatever we're calling it these days. So I would say employers and employees beware, and you don't have to put up with the bad behavior. Uh, you know, as we said before, you can always say, knock it off, stop, don't do that, remove yourself from the situation, report, and once you do report, there's going to be follow-up in the form of an investigation. So, Okay. If you've ever thought about what... You should do if you need a lawyer. Come back after the break. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Just tuned in. We've been talking to Mike Caples and David Wolf about employment law, sexual harassment, a little bit around discrimination. Uh, if you've missed any of the show, you can always find us online at thementorsradio.com, and you can listen to us on iTunes and in podcasts. So now I am an employee, and I'm in trouble for whatever. Maybe I feel I've been discriminated against. It could be age, race, whatever, gender. How do I pick an attorney? I'll start with Mike. Yeah, uh First place to go, because most people haven't had much contact with the legal world. So I think the first place you go is uh, probably the local bar association. All the local bar associations and the state bar have referral programs where you can get the names of people who, lawyers who, uh, as if people and lawyers were different, but in any event, uh, lawyers who practice in whatever the area of, of conflict you're, you've got. So uh, that would be the first thing. Get a, and, and get, get you know, half a dozen different names. If you know somebody who's had this uh, an, an issue with labor and employment, by all means, look to them. But once you have that list of names, you really need to vet them. Uh, you want to make sure that they've been practicing for a little while because all labor and employment cases ultimately can, I mean, that's the end of the road, end up in trial. So you want to make sure that the person has labor and employment experience. You want to make sure that they have trial experience. Um, and uh, uh, you also need to make sure that this is a person that you can live with. So you need to interview the, the, the attorneys. This is a person whose demeanor, whose manner, whose presence is something you can live with uh, for the next anywhere from two to five years because you're going to be spending a lot of time with this person and uh, uh, probably more than you, you anticipate. And, and just look at it, you know, lawyers, we sell, we sell our services. We're no different from the plumber or the electrician, and, and we should be treated the same 
in terms of you know where, whether you hire us. So. We're not treated as well as the plumber and the electrician. We're, <laughs> so, that's because they're smarter know. than we so, are. So, David, would, right. would, if I were looking for an attorney, would it be uh, the norm that I could go in and have a, a discussion with you without having been charged? I mean, would you— Well, it, it kind of depends on the case. I mean, I, I would— uh, I've given away so much free legal advice. <laughs> you know, you meet meet with somebody in a coffee shop and you you give them, you know, uh, a kid around and say, okay, I gave him $1,000 worth of advice in a half hour because I've been doing this for 31 years and I told them, I mapped out their whole case for them and then they decide not to do not to do anything, not to go forward. So sometimes I'll charge a very modest uh, like half hour fee for a, a one hour consultation. And uh, that's just me, what I do now in private practice. But um, there is sort of a misconception that uh, you're going to come in and, and be able to talk to an attorney for hours for free like you do in a PI case, a personal injury case, where you've been in a car accident or something like that and some, you've been injured in some way that's really obvious. There's definitely liability. You're just looking to figure out whether it's the insurance carrier, if there's insurance, or the, the – uh, the person who caused the harm, but anyway, to Mike's points earlier, there are lots of ways to uh, to find a lawyer through the various referral sources, through various networks, through your own friends, and um, the state bar and the county bar association are always good good uh, places to go. Um, or the, for example, the bar association of San Francisco website or Alameda County Contra Costa, wherever you happen to be. And real quick, if somebody uh, in our listening audience wants to contact you, how would they do that? They could go to the State Bar website, just put uh, State Bar CA, put that in, go to Attorney Search, and then put in our names, uh, either one of us, uh, David Wolf or Mike Caples, Wolf, W-O-L-F, or Caples, C-A-P-L-E-S, and you'll you'll find uh, one of us in Berkeley, that would be me, and Mike in Walnut Creek. Thank you. Indeed. Time has gone by. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Uh, you've been listening to The Mentors, and we've been talking about employment law, and particularly we've been talking about the issue of sexual harassment. Join us next weekend at this time for the next edition of The Mentors, or listen to us on TheMentorsRadio.com. Until next week, on behalf of Rick Rudico, John Phillips, I am Tom Laurie, urging you to be all that you can be and to keep the candle lit for those who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.